Welcome to Standout, where you're going to hear from some exceptional entrepreneurs. You'll learn what it took to get them where they are and what you can do to make your mark. I'm your host, Cheryl Tan, with CherylTanMedia.com. You can find the show notes at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. Want to connect on Twitter? You can find me there at Cheryl Tan. Ever have a great idea you know will make money? An idea that has the potential to grow into something really, really big. What do you do then? I heard this great quote from Mary Kay Ash, the founder of Mary Kay Cosmetics. Ideas are a dime a dozen. People who implement them are priceless. I'll bet most people move on to the next thing without a second thought. My guest today took her idea and ran with it. I met Teresa Denham several years ago. I was hosting a lifestyle TV show at the time, and her story caught our attention. She had created gloves with pom-poms sewn onto the ends of the fingers as an inexpensive way to show team spirit. She turned that invention into a business, a very successful one. As the owner of Spirit Fingers, her fanware was attracting many fans. Those Spirit Fingers were featured on national morning television shows, and since she was a local entrepreneur, we wanted to bring her story to our audience. Want to hear how Teresa Denham grew Spirit Fingers into a million-dollar business? Listen. Hello and welcome to the show. (laughs) Teresa, it is so nice to have you joining us today. Thank you for having me. Teresa Denham, you are the CEO and founder of Spirit Fingers, which got its start in your house in Virginia Beach, and I absolutely love your story. So I wanted to talk with you about that first. How did Spirit Fingers come to be? Um, so in an effort to save money, I went and got a pair of gloves and some pom-poms, put them together, took them to a game. Um, everyone sort of fell in love with the concept. And, um, and, and then for about a year, I sat on the idea of the invention. Um, and to my surprise, I had actually invented something. Um, and so I sort of went from there. I applied for the patent in December of 2007 and um, incorporated my business in, in May of 2008 and received the patent in 2010. And in the meantime, um, ran it out of my house uh, with a $20 fax machine and a telephone and, um, and one style of spirit fingers, which was the Virginia Tech spirit fingers. And, um, and grew it to about a million dollars by the end of 2010. Incredible. And as you're going through the steps, it seems easy. And I'm putting that in quotes, but I know it wasn't. So I kind of want to go back to that Virginia Tech game, which is the game where you didn't necessarily want to buy fanware for that game. So you were instead going to create your own. So you go into the store, and did you have an idea that this is what what you were going to do, what you were going to create? Yes. So, yeah, I had made the pom-poms, which was just a a simple, you know, wrap it around your hand, make a cut. I had made those before as a child um, and tied them to my shoes as a cheerleader. And so I had never been to a college football game, and, and thinking to myself, I probably won't ever go back to this particular college 
Um, so I didn't want to buy a lot of memorabilia just for the, you know, for the sake of the game. So, um, yes, I didn't have, I, I, I didn't know that I was innovating something when I created the first pair. Um, and after a lot of Google searching and a lot of, um, of kind of research and development throughout that year, I kind of realized that created something that did not exist in the marketplace and that um, the only way that I would be able to claim that as an invention was to apply for a patent. So two questions then. We'll talk about the patent in a little bit, but first I wanted to see how you knew that you had an idea that people would buy. Because as you sat on it for a year, were people asking you about it? Did you get some feedback from people saying, oh, I would buy that? How did you realize that it was even worth getting a patent, which I know you've told me before cost thousands of dollars? Yes. So, yes and no. Yes, I would show it to close friends and family, and they would kind of say, oh, that's so cute. And, um, so, yeah, I, I never really got that's a dumb product or that's you know, no one ever said anything negative. Um, and secondly, um, um, going up to the tech game, or excuse me, going up to Virginia Tech Bookstore to talk to them about purchasing the product and then buying it right on the spot, which I haven't gone into in this interview, but uh, it, was, it was an indicator that it was something that was going to succeed. And, and now let me answer your other question, actually. Um, how did I know that it didn't exist? I simply Googled it. And back then, there wasn't Facebook. This is in 2006, 2007, mind you. Facebook wasn't big. Etsy.com wasn't big. Um, eBay was just kind of starting out. That was kind of the new hip shopping space. Um, so there wasn't a lot of people connecting in mass market retail online. And so if... Fast forward to 2015, I almost think that um, I may not have invented, I may not, I may have missed my window had I not gotten that patent and acted on it quickly. Oh, wow. That is something that would be unheard of, really, because it would have changed your the trajectory of your life, for sure. Absolutely. So the time that you created these spirit fingers and the time in history that we were really helped you move it forward. Absolutely. Yeah, it would be a different, uh, there's so many crafters out there and really skillful people. And I wouldn't say that I was a, a particularly crafty person. I just did this as a way, uh, as a means of saving money. And, but the difference between maybe me and a crafter was my, my entrepreneurial, um, mindset or background, immediately when I got the positive feedback from it, I immediately thought of the business and how big it could really be. So let's talk about your entrepreneurial mindset and what helped you move this forward. Yeah, sure. Um, so as an entrepreneur, I was able to identify some key characteristics after the fact. When I was really young, it was in me, I would sell, you know, I'd make my brother shoot mistletoe down out of the trees and I'd baggy them up and I'd walk through the neighborhood and sell it. Um, 
In fourth grade, I invented this copy machine that would make my job more efficient as the teacher's <laughs> assistant. And, you know, so those things, looking back now, I had always had that sort of spirit. Uh, fast forward to high school, and um, and I just kind of, I felt a little out of place. People were very academic, or they were, um, or they were just really uninterested in school. And I kind of fit in between there. I was interested in school and people, and having the responsibility of being somewhere every day, and, and I responsibly showed up for school. But the academia side was of no interest to me, except for a few classes like marketing and economics and certain things like that. So I excelled in those classes. Um, but I, and I've said this to you before, I did. I felt really out of place in a in a group of academias. But I knew that I was ambitious, just as ambitious as they were. But it was always gearing towards having a business. Um, of my own instead of, you know, working for someone. I always want, I like the building process. Mm -hmm. It was a different track. The marketing yeah. aspect I wanted to talk with you about because that's what, that's what brought Spirit Fingers to my attention. We met several years ago uh, when I was hosting a local TV show and we heard about you because you are on one of the national morning shows. Yeah. And you were right down the road from us yeah. <laughs> in Virginia Beach. So talk about how you got the attention of these uh, outlets, these media outlets, and how where you've been seen and how you made that connection. Okay. Um, well, I, it started, my first article dropped in 2008, um, which is in our local publication, which was the, one of the largest... Um, print for the Virginian pilot because it was the day after the, um, the election of President Obama. And so I, he was on the front page as our new president, and I was on the front page of, um, of the daily break, I think it was, in that, in that, term, in that sense. Um, and so that was the first one. Um, and I never spent money on uh, a PR firm or... Um, or really any, I didn't even have a marketing budget. I just did what I could the organic way. And people, actually people came to me. I never really solicited myself or the business. People, I think, just became curious by word of mouth. Um, I will say that Facebook, as it continued to get more and more and more popular, especially amongst my age group, um, by word of mouth, people would just spread you know, they would say, oh, I know the girl that started Spirit Fingers. I would keep everyone up to date on almost, a, you know, on a, on a weekly and monthly basis about what was going on in the business. And they would just talk about it, you know. And I think um, there's it actually becomes a really small world when you're, when you're connected to 1,200 people on Facebook and then they're connected to it, you know. And then yeah. they just share the updates. They say, hey, did you hear what Teresa's doing? Did you hear about the new line or the new this or new that with the company? Yeah, yeah. And then someone knows someone. And, and then, you know, the, the publication that you're talking about was the Good Morning America show. And it was the day before the Super Bowl in 2012, no, 2013 maybe. It was about two years ago. Um and Bobby Brown or Bobby Bobby from the um, 
from the, what is it, the style editor from mm-hmm. from um, the ABC channel, okay. contacted us and said, hey, we've heard about this female fanware item, um, you know, we've seen it on television, and, you know, we'd like to get some, if you wouldn't mind, and feature it on our show for the must-haves for this year's Super Bowl. And you said yes. <laughs> yes. I'm a yes girl. <laughs> Make it happen. <laughs> But it's really great to hear how uh, just by you doing a good job, by reaching your fans and having a wild fan base, that they found you. And that's kind of what it sounds like it happened. Right, right, right. And a lot of times it's, um, it's, it's under-promising and over-delivering. I never say I can do something unless I know I can do it on or before the time that they need it. For example, Pepsi um, called us and wanted us to do the the most recent inauguration for President Obama. Wow. And so that was what 2012, mm-hmm. 2000, yeah, probably November two, or excuse me, January, maybe 2013. So they called. And they wanted fifteen thousand pair of spirit fingers, and they were going to do it in red, white, and blue, and put the Pepsi logo. They wanted us to put the Pepsi logo on it, and um, and they would hand it out at the inauguration for kind of fanware, wow. or you know, as a as a as a giveaway. And um, it was a one day event. If we could not pull that off, we were going to be sitting on fifteen thousand pair of USA Pepsi Cola Spirit Fingers. Right. <laughs> and, and we said no. I mean, we walked away from it. We, we lost, um, we never lost the customer. They have actually come back and done a different sort of, uh, promotional, um, thing with us. But yeah, we've, you know, that's part of, of being a, an honest entrepreneur is saying, you know, like, look, I can't do it. I can't make it happen. We would really like to take this opportunity, but sometimes you just have to say no. Wow. I didn't realize that. So the other thing you mentioned is, uh, logos and licensing and, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs would love to get into, but don't understand the process. Know that there's competition. What advice can you give for those business people about licensing? So I was fortunate enough enough to have a product that uh, someone else could see the potential, um, and and the potential not just in the product itself but the potential in licensing that particular product with college logos, which eventually led into professional licensing also. But our first break was in 2008, the same year that I launched the company. And I had a a company that had all of the college licensing uh, call me on the telephone and say, hey, look, we understand you have a patent pending for this. We would like to do a licensing contract with your company. And, ex- and and add it to our catalog, and um, see what we can do in our in the college bookstore market. Well, um, for me, I think that was just a lucky break. Maybe a, a you know, and I, I don't completely believe in luck, but the right person saw it at the right time and contacted the right company, and and I really didn't have to do anything. It was just mm-hmm. the the product either. I think most products, either people that see it want to have a, have a part of it or they don't. Um, and so fast forward to, 
you know, two or three years later and we're doing a million dollars, the person who initially called me obviously had um, the same vision that I personally had for the company. I see. And so, yeah, so um, it's kind of gone from there. I, I, I licensed it out in a much bigger way in 2012 where we um, did an exclusive agreement with a company who had what we call an umbrella license, and that was for NCAA, NFL, NHL, M MLB, uh, Major League Soccer, Olympics, NASCAR. I mean, every, they're the largest, they're the sixth largest sports licensee in the world. And we knew our focus, and that was to maintain our patent, to protect our patent, to develop other, other line extensions from just the license category. And so we decided to license that particular line to them exclusively. Um, but does that happen a lot? It, it really doesn't. I, I had a million dollars in sales when I approached them. And so it, makes sense. it made a lot of sense for them. So would you say that for someone who is in the audience here and they think they have a, pro a product that can go big, what would you say to them? to have the sales probably under their belt before they even go to the next level. Absolutely. So we um, couldn't have done it. Had we gone to the company that we're with now, we would never have been as successful um, because we are a small fish in the big pond with our licensee now. With our previous licensee, we were a small fish in a big pond, but we became a big fish in a small pond, and we sort of outgrew um, them as a licensing partner. But my advice for someone who believes that they have a product um, that, that, that would be more successful with sports licensing or college or football licensing is to kind of do it yourself at first. Get what is considered a local license. It, can, it will be extended to you on a statewide basis. So in, spe in specific um, terms, I'm from Virginia, and therefore a local license that was extended to my company was for the state of Virginia colleges only, which included Virginia Tech, James Madison, uh, University of Virginia, um, I think Old Dominion, just a few that are managed by this bigger corporation, and then see where that goes. And for me... It sold really well in that local license, so it wasn't hard for someone to to seek me out to get you know the bigger deal that I got. Teresa, that is a great piece of advice. Is it easier to get a local license? I mean, the competition is much less. Yes, yeah, and it's almost it's almost a given. If you apply for it oh. and you can prove that you have uh, manufactured the product already, or you're in that in that development stage of manufacturing. Um, you do have to report who your manufacturer is, whether it's local or overseas, or domestic or international. Um, and, and so they and they have to approve it, and then you're extended what is considered the artwork um, access. And so you access this website, you download all of the artwork from each respective school, and um, and then you can sort of pass that along to your factory. And that's where they would embroider or, you know, if it was a print or something like that, that's when they could access that, that artwork for the schools. 
But like you said, if you can prove yourself in your community, in your state, then it's easier for a national or an international firm to look at your company in a different light. Absolutely. Much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had distribution from May of 2008 through December of 2008, which is the date that I launched the company, um, and then kind of the, the end of the year that year, I had sold $6,000 worth, but I was selling them for $5 back then. I didn't know it. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm sure it cost me money at that point. But So <laughs> if you divide, you know, 6000 divided by $5, it, to be honest, it was a lot. And I was in about 35 stores. And... Um, so that's kind of where the momentum also came from. I, there wasn't a lot of doors that were shut for me. It was very easy, um, open, you know, open, open for for um, for a sales channel that I didn't know anything. It wasn't just the bookstores; it was all retailers. So way back in the beginning, I know you were making the spirit fingers in your house. <laughs> and now it's completely different. So how different does your business look now than from when you started? Well, yeah, I did used to make them on the couch. That was that was terrible because again, I'm not really a crafter, but I just kind of stumbled into this business. Um, so how does it look? Now, now it's more, um, you know, we, we actually make the gloves from scratch. And when I say we, our factory makes it from from literally yarn or strings. And so that took on a whole new learning curve for me because now I was in in what they consider knits. I was in the business of knits. I had to um, learn how to, to um, you know, dye this, this color. There's literally nothing exists when it starts. And so we had to learn things called Pantone colors, um, which is the universal language of, um, any kind of football or, you know, NFL, NCAA, these colors that they use, they have a, a registered Pantone color or an official Pantone color. Um, so I had to, that was a learning curve for me, um, learning how to construct a glove from nothing, learning how to figure out the, the feeling and the texture of the yarn, how many times it needed to be starched and how many times it needed to how many strings needed to make up the, the thread for the yarn to make <laughs> the pom-pom and, and how to make the pom-pom more secure because it's attached to the fingertips and um, how big the wrist should be, the, the elastic in the wrist. and So, yeah, it, it, um, it changed substantially because before I could just go buy the yarn, buy the gloves, and attach the pom-poms. And now it was really creating the actual product itself. <laughs> yeah. Business-wise, though, it is no longer in your house. It is in your factory, as you mentioned, um, but, but you have a, a different kind of control. Like before, you controlled the amount of yarn. While you didn't have the Pantone colors, you had you know, red or black or blue, but now it's a little different. You're, um, you're a business owner, right? It's very right. different. Right, very different. So... Um, yeah, I, I don't. We do we do it much differently. We used to obviously keep it in our house. That was our inventory. Right. Um, we would pick, pack, and ship it out of the 
the spare bedroom in the house, and then we moved into a bigger house, and the office was still there. And in about two years into the business, I decided to move out of the house because we had gotten much bigger. Um, and then now we are, you know, we have a 15,000 square foot warehouse. Not that we, we utilize the entire 15,000 square foot at all times, but yeah, we, we, um, we place an order. It comes in from, from California. It's put into our it, it extremely um, efficient process that we have now. The warehouse process is, is really good. It's, it's, um, when it comes over, it's bag tagged and ready to go and put into our, into our system. We scan it as soon as we get in. The inventory is read electronically and it goes either um, to our online inventory system or our internal warehouse system, but it, it's much more advanced and efficient than it used to be. In the beginning, you had a lot of national press, local and national press, and that got the word out. But now you're using something different to let your customers and potential customers know about you. And, and you said it's been very, very effective. So as far as marketing, how do you get the word out and how do people find out about you? And so now we're more established in terms of a brand. We have the credibility. We've been around for seven years. And enough people had seen us or bought our product um, that we felt like we could do a marketing campaign now where we could actually take our money and spend it and people would buy it or recognize it and want to buy it again. Um, and so with that being said, we, we spend anywhere between $700 and $2,000 a day on Facebook and a, a strategic ad campaign that we target um, a certain geographical location all the way down to the user that would, that, 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 the algorithm that um, Facebook has created that would allow our product to be insert in front of certain women, really, is, our, is kind of our, our, our niche customer here. Now, a lot of times men will see it and they'll purchase it for their wives or their daughters, their mothers or sisters, but um, when we run our Facebook campaign now, it is specifically targeted to maybe the Dallas Cowboys because they're doing really good this year and a lot of people are buying their memorabilia and we're targeting women between the ages of 23 and 54 because we've learned that that's our our, our biggest customer base and, um, and 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 usually for every three dollars we spend I think we end up making I could be wrong with the specifics here but I think it's about thirty dollars Wow yeah. Wow. And, um, and you know, when, when we operate at what we call 30% capacity for our, for our marketing uh, efforts on Facebook, we do about $50,000 off of that seven to $800 a day at 30%. Mm -hmm. Now, if we bump it up to 100% at $2,000 or more on our Facebook campaign, you're talking like a half a million dollars. So, do you see what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. You figured out how it can work for you. So if you're giving advice to an entrepreneur who's looking at Facebook marketing versus television marketing or newspaper marketing or radio ads, how, how would you say just from your experience how to help them getting their reach and finding their customers? Um, 
it actually provides it for you. If you do kind of a test market through Facebook, you really can get a lot of information and it is who's looking at it, what their age group is, what their sex is, what their race is, what their education level is. It's, it's, it's almost impossible to, for you to fail at a Facebook campaign because they provide you with so much information. And yes, I, I think um, even since 2008, the retail industry has changed substantially. And the same money that someone would put in to be a wholesaler, to, re to provide product to retailers such as Target or Nordstrom or Cracker Barrel or any of the mom and pop shops, there's a thing called a margin. So if, if their margin at wholesale, I'm going to use numbers here, just you know, arbitrary numbers, cost you $5 to make your product, you sell it for $10 to the wholesale account. At retail, that product is $20. So when you're selling it to your retailers, you're making $5 each time they buy a piece of your product or you know a, a pair of your gloves. Um, each time you sell it to an end consumer, which is, which is typically, if you don't have your own stores, is on the online category. Mm -hmm. So that same $20 our profit is $15. Our margin then is now $15. We have to sell one glove for every three pair that we would sell to a wholesale account to make the same amount of money. Right. And um, not that our, our retailers are not extremely important because they are. For my product, it is, it is a game day accessory. So it needs to be at stadiums. It needs to be in stores, available for the day of the game. Some other people that maybe it's just a gift item or it's just an item that, that someone could purchase at any point, the online category and, and marketing your store online is 100% the way to go. Right. Mm -hmm. So what's next for Spirit Fingers? You're always innovating. You're always thinking for the next level. So what's next for the company? So we are launching a kids line. We have gotten a lot of feedback from our customers that the gloves are just simply too large. We say it's one size fits most, but um, as the creator, I created it as an adult, and so the gloves tend to fit me as an adult more so than a child. Um, but I think I have a little pair right here. Uh, okay. So this is, the, this is the current size that we offer right now, and this will be this will be the smaller, and we might do a little bit smaller than this too. But but you can see it clearly um, is is smaller than yeah, adorable. Maybe. Yeah, we're gonna have some really fun colors and um, some some stripes, and so we've got a couple different things going on. But that will be our biggest um, development for the company going into 2016. That's really exciting. So how can people? find you? What's your website? Uh, what links would you like to share so people can go and buy up some Spirit Fingers and the new line for kids? Well, we are always online at www.spiritfingers.com. We're also on Amazon in the United States, Canada, and by the middle of 2016, we'll be in Europe. So it doesn't matter if you're here or international. We can provide um, shipping pretty efficiently through our our warehouse fulfillment at Amazon. 
Um, and you can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Share your photos. Teresa, awesome, awesome advice that you shared with us. One last question before we go is sure. what makes you a standout? Well, um, a standout entrepreneur, business owner, both, innovator, all of it. Mm -hmm. um, it was probably going, taking an idea and turning it into a business and then being able to go from an inventor to a business owner all the way through the cycle of, I've even sold a portion of my company so that I could be surrounded by people who were smarter than me, that were doing bigger things than I could have ever done with the company. And so it was almost from, from, from inventing a product all the way through selling a portion of the company. And um, so, yeah, that's probably it. That, that's what makes me stand out. I just have done so much in such a short period of time that I can help a lot of people that may need advice or need to know what to do or what not to do. Well, you've certainly given us some wonderful and actionable advice. So I thank you so much for your time. Thank you for joining us, Teresa. Yeah, thank you for having me, Cheryl. I hope you enjoyed Teresa Denham's standout interview. I love Teresa's determination to learn, to innovate, and to seek help when needed. Teresa gave some invaluable advice for startup product companies, and after our interview, she gave me more key information about applying for local sports licensing. I'll put all of those details in the show notes, which will be available at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. Until next time, thanks so much for joining me. I'm Cheryl Tan.